Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson-Pettit. My guest this week is Trent Bigelow, CEO at Abound. Abound is a suite of APIs that increase retention and revenue by making it easy to embed benefits in a compliant way into your product. I feel very lucky to have known Trent and the Abound team for a good while now, number of years. In fact, we're such good friends that it actually took me 17 minutes to remember to ask him to explain what Abound is building and why. So if you're really curious about that piece for perspective, please fast forward. We dive deep on fintech, independent work, and behavioral science, and so much more. This week's episode of For Fintech's Sake is sponsored by LSBX. LSBX is Lincoln Savings Bank's fintech-focused division. I never thought I'd be reading ads on For Fintech's Sake, as many of you know. If you've been listening since the early days, you've been paying attention, and you know I started the this craziness as a way to learn and talk to important people that would never have any other reason to give me their time. But I recognize after having a few companies ask about it that I should actually consider it made it very clear that I would only associate for fintech's sake with companies that are supporting founders and doing good for the world. LSBX is exactly that. They were supporting founders and doing the sponsor bank thing since 2014, so before it was cool. If you're a startup or a growth stage company looking to find a direct bank relationship for deposits, debit card issuance, or access to banking rails through a great partner and a direct banking partner, go to lsbx.com. Linking Savings Bank is a member FDIC. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the great and powerful Trent Bigelow. All right, Trent, my dude, as if we haven't been talking for the last 20 minutes anyways, how are you today, my friend? I am doing extremely well. It's so good to, to hear your voice and to see you. It's been too long. It's been way too long. Are you uh, cooped up in SF with the rest of the rest of the Californians, or where where are you right now? It looks like you got some beautiful art behind you that the listeners <laughs> cannot see. Yeah, um, I'm I'm one of the many still very uncool people who are still uh, stuck in San Francisco and have not yet moved to Miami. Uh, you haven't moved to Miami. What are you? Not a Bitcoin decamillionaire or something? I mean, come on. This is this is what people do now. Keith Raboy would be quite ashamed of you. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm. I definitely believe that founders everywhere, um, all across the country, all across the world, have a big opportunity to build great businesses. But there's something to be said about uh, let's let's see how the reopening up in San Francisco and cities like New York and anywhere where you have these ecosystems that are just can't wait to get back and be in person with each other. Ah, the world, it returns. It returns to somewhat normal. And you and I need to talk more about that uh, that little secret Midwest FinTech conference we've been kind of brainstorming as well. For sure. All right. Well, we'll get to that offline. None of the listeners get, get that kind of an inside scoop. So you and I have known each other a while now. Uh, what has it been? Three, four years, something like that. When we when we first met, how how did we meet? Was it Shiel Shiel introduction? I think it was definitely Shiel Manat, um, somebody I think we both really respect. Um, Shiel yep. was an investor um, in our in our company. Um, our company is Abound, but at the time we were known as Track when we were a direct to consumer uh, tax withholding um, automation app for freelancers like like ourselves. We had asked Shiel for. Um, an introduction to a partner bank because we were we were at the point where we thought it made sense to actually physically withhold money um, for those independent workers so that they didn't spend what they owed. And uh, 
you know, you can tell me how, how you got connected with Shield, but Shield said, hey, there's this one person I know at this one Midwest bank, probably never heard of them. Um, but, but Zach and his team seems pretty innovative. Um, they're, they're working on uh, really stepping up to be kind of this, this innovative partner bank to the fintechs. Yeah, I actually have... I, I think I think I cold emailed him or something. I don't think that there was any warm introduction to Shield. I was just like poke, poke, poke. Hey, pay attention, pay attention. And uh, out of that came at least an introduction to you, and actually many, many other friendships. Shield has been awesome to both of us. I think throughout our lives. So to your point about the the ecosystem that we were kind of talking about a minute ago, you come from a background that led you to track that led you to abound as I should be calling it, that is kind of scratching your own itch, right? Like you felt this, mm-hmm. this pain that we're going to talk about yourself. So give me a little bit of like the Trent background and how you, how you felt enough pain to, to do something as crazy as start a company around it. Sure. Uh, so let's see. Uh, I had been a freelance user experience researcher for a long time. Um, I had made my own go at a previous startup before that. Um, it, you know, let's just chalk it up as lessons learned, um, AKA it failed miserably. Um, and I swore off being a founder for a long time. And that's what led me to becoming a user experience researcher, really with the motivation of understanding, you know, what went, what went wrong in my experience as a founder the first time around? Um, how can I help other founders understand the gap between the intent of their products and then the experience that the user has trying to use that product? And that was, just an awesome experience. I didn't work for, you know, a design or a research firm. I worked on my own. Um, in that course of of doing that UX research work for clients and startups, it it dawned on me when I met my two co-founders, Alex Cram and, and Chris Lebaski, when we were working together, actually met on a client project, um, that we were spending more and more time uh, doing bookkeeping, basically playing, you know, HR manager for ourselves, making sure that we knew how much of the money our client paid us each week was actually take home, actually safe to spend. And we didn't understand why did all the accounting apps that we were paying for, or even financial professionals for those of us who could afford it, why were we still spending what we owed? Um, we didn't understand what quarterly estimated taxes were. Uh, we didn't understand you know, how to find and manage and pay for our own benefits. And when we started going to uh, freelancer meetups, we realized it wasn't just the three of us. I mean, there were 68 million um, independent workers, according to McKinsey. Um, That number is expected to go up, you know, roughly 50% of the entire U.S. workforce will have $1,000 or more in non-employment, you know, 1099 income. And the dirty little secret, and it's not little, uh, the dirty secret is that uh, for us independent workers, we are our own employer. And we have to do all of our own tax work. We have to figure out our own benefits. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it. There are so many cool companies, so many cool fintech startups that are you know, in the financial and benefits space that are doing incredible things to make life you know, for 2015, you know, Trent, a lot easier. Um, and I, I can't wait for us to get into it. I love it. I love it. That kind of passion that you just displayed right there is, I mean, why I was bugging you guys so intensely back in the day to join Fountain City Fintech. And at that point, there was still kind of this this fork in the road. There was a, do we go B2C and do we solve this problem for this set of individuals on a very personal brand level? Or do we enable this kind of what you just referred to, this whole next wave of be it fintech, be it, you know, whatever the buzzword is, problem solvers for the 1099 economy. And 
you went very, very quickly in one direction. I think after, well, during Fountain City Fintech, I think you developed that thesis. And then after that, Mm -hmm. you really, really got into it. But my question to you, kind of coming out of that and talking about those 68 million people and how that's going to increase is who needs it the most, right? Because I think you, you and I both have had 1099 income. We both have had experiences in life where that tax bill was a little bit of a surprise and we had kind of an oh shit moment, Mm -hmm. but are we the people that really need it the most are us, you know, kind of white males that are probably making at least 75,000 a year, maybe a hundred, maybe whatever. It's a problem that we all have, I guess, but at the end of the day, do we need it? Does the Uber driver need it? Like who is the person that you hope to help kind of in the end state of a bound? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the short answer is, and this is not a cop out. I truly believe this. Anyone who's earning self-employment income, um, who doesn't have enough money set aside, uh, to just, you know, easily write that check, that quarterly estimated tax check so that they don't get fined, so they don't get penalized needs to have, uh, either, either their bank or their bookkeeping app or even where they get paid by their client using payroll or, or a gig platform. There needs to be that that uh, same level of, of financial security and and tax withholding and benefits contributions at that point of payment. So, because we, as humans, we just can't be trusted really to do the right thing when the money is you know sitting together in our bank account. We're going to spend it how we want to spend it. Or you're talking about who needs it. I mean, there are there are millions and millions of Americans um, that are on the lower income side that don't really even have the ability, even if they wanted to do the right thing. Uh, from a tax or benefit standpoint, a lot of people can't afford uh, the, the cost of taxes in healthcare because they can barely afford to make ends meet around you know basic survival needs. And so, uh, I'd say in general, there are a lot of things that we need to address at an independent economy level around earnings. But as long as we have rules on the books um, that require you or really compel you to have some of these you know sort of these financial protections, I think it's on us and the apps that serve these people to do better for them. Like, let's make it easier. If we pay you a $1099 and realistically only, let's say, 70 cents of it are take home, we, I think it really is an imperative for us as, as those apps to, to, to help them um, be on the right footing for that 30% that really should be going to these different you know, financial goals or, or taxes. How much of your brain is occupied by Dan Ariely and kind of behavioral <laughs> psychology in general? How much, how, how deep did you go, especially kind of when you were on the B2C side of things? Because it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is just, you know, humans left to our own devices will generally make whatever the, the, the most dopamine filled decision is in the short term, right? So how, how much of that is in your head still? How much of that do you think through while you're B2B versus B2C? Is it still a, a focus? Totally. Uh, you do know me well. I look at the world and almost every interaction that I have, maybe this is part UX, part behavioral economics, as yeah. I'm constantly asking myself, is this an opt-in or an opt-out? Um, you know, because that is, I think the world becomes much easier when you interact with people or systems or things, uh, when you think in terms of, you know, am I on my agenda? Is it somebody else's agenda? So the short answer is, um, you know, common sense labs has never gotten out of my head. Um, I actually had the pleasure of speaking with Wendy De La Rosa actually just yesterday morning, kind of catching up. Um, I think that fintechs in general would not just do better for their, for their end users. Um, but they'll do better financially. They'll be more competitive. 
uh, when they embrace behavioral economics and behavioral science. Again, I'm speaking as a former UXer, um, so I think you know this is me probably preaching to the choir here. Um, you talked about like what you know maybe so say using behavioral economics, what business model made sense for us? You know, again, we're kind of elephant in the room for for those that know us is that we used to be uh, track.tax when we were direct to consumer, and now we're abound because we're an API. I'd say the biggest lesson learned that we had in that experience is that, you know, just to kind of walk back the clock, what do you do when founders truly know that they've built the right product for the end user that has a really deep financial security problem and the apps out there today are just not cutting it? They're falling short. Um, and, you know, you, you, as a founder, you go out there and, and you, you innovate and build a brand new breakthrough product. I think... You know, anyone who's been anyone who's working on startups knows that just because you build it doesn't mean that people will come. Um, and what we learned the hard way was that independent workers are are very difficult um, to find and acquire when you treat them like one big, you know, homogenous group. Because mm -hmm. if you were to talk to an Uber driver and you were to understand their financial, the way that they see themselves as an identity or even their financial issues. They look, they look and sound very different than, say, a real estate agent or an attorney um, or, you know, an independent, um, you know, consultant. And the way you approach them, uh, acquire them, serve them, and create a sense of community, you're really, you're building like, you know, 10 or 20 different companies, really, even if it is the same product. And so that got us to the realization, and I wish we would have gotten to it sooner, uh, but it got us to the realization that uh, the businesses that we think are going to win in the independent economy are the ones that at least initially do a really good job of narrowing and focusing the product scope um, so narrow that it is so best in class that it can be widely applicable to many, many um, different types of, of end users. I think Calendly is, I think, a fantastic example of that. It's a best-in-class focused product that is widely applicable, and i i would I would say that Calendly is a great example of both a fintech and a uh, independent economy company. When you think in terms of like Calendly's in this amazing position to help uh, consultants and independent workers, yoga instructors monetize their time. The hmm. other category of uh, so you can go real narrow in product scope, real wide on audience. You can do the flip side. I think you can go really narrow on audience and go really deep on product scope. Um, I think companies like HoneyBook or Squire are good examples of that, where they're building the best-in-class product for, you know, say, um, you know, event planners or creatives or barbers and uh, stylists. So at Track, we were looking at the fact, like, well, wait a second, we've built an extremely deep product, and we think it's widely applicable to all 68 million independent workers. You know, which one do we want to do? Do we want to reduce... Um, the number of people that we think we can serve. I mean, that seems kind of silly. That goes against our mission. Do we want to reduce um, the scope of our product? I mean, are we really going to comment out aspects of our product that once people get in there, they love? And it dawned on us that, well, what if there's a third way? What if instead of competing with all of these different companies in these different categories, what if we could, you know, if you can't beat them, join them? Like, what if we could be a component inside those apps that serve a narrow uh, product scope, wide audience, or that narrow um, narrow audience, wide product scope. And so, good news, we built track on top of our own internal APIs. We realized um, we had an extremely brilliant technical team that were probably best you know, building an API platform to begin with. 
And then the third thing being that we spent, you know, I think one of the reasons we never really figured out, um, you know, a, a, the right LTV over CAC ratio um, for for track was because we kept spending time building uh, microservices and infrastructure components just to do the full experience inside track.tax. So when we, when we, you know, stepped out of our shell and I, and I love, you know, if you, if you know, the story about, um, the, the founders of Intel, um, and I, I, I forget if it was Gordon Moore, if it was Andy, or Andy Grove that said, you know, gentlemen, um, it's Friday board meeting, we fire, we're all fired. Um, we're not doing well. Um, we're going to come back Monday and we're going to rehire ourselves to clean up the mess that the, that the three of us have made um, the previous week. Um, <laughs> that sounds, so, sounds like Andy Grove. I'm not, I, I'm not sure either, but just having read a few books by the man, I, that sounds grovey. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it was. Um, so I, we had that conversation about a year ago and Alex, Chris and I really kind of took the attitude of like, well, let's give ourselves permission to completely rethink things. Um, let's flip as many things on its head as we can, as long as it still stays true to that mission of improving wealth and wellness for 68 million independent workers. And, and then the kind of the algorithm, or at least the, uh, the optimization that we got to was what would, what would help us accomplish that mission faster? And that's where it became very clear to, that, to us that our opportunity to you know, kind of hyperscale our business was to be a component to to not necessarily narrow the scope of the product, but but rethink how we delivered it. And it is so much fun to now be in the business of I think helping more independent workers than we would have if we tried to do this on our own. And we've turned companies that I think we used to see as competitors to track into customers at a bound. It is so cool to watch you guys grow. I mean, having been in the trenches with you through the accelerator, through my time at MBKC, your time kind of going through the wilderness, right? I mean, you, Alex, and uh, Chris, the Lebowski man himself, like those, those were, those were some tough times. I remember and not tough in the, you know, are we going to die kind of way, but just what is the way that we can provide the most value. And one of the things I admire the most is how you really have stuck to that mission through and through. And knowing myself, I'm going to just keep going as if everyone just knows what a bound is and what mm -hmm. the product itself truly does. So maybe we should pause and kind of rewind almost a little bit. Explain, explain what a bound is today, not just, you know, this tax withholding thing that I think mm -hmm. people provide an umbrella on, but the nuances therein, right? We're talking about quarterly, uh, you know, the actual term, I'm going to fuck it up. Quarterly, what estimated quarterly estimated taxes quarterly estimated taxes that you can tell I don't pay and, uh, or I'm at least not paying on time and just kind of the, the feature set, like how, how, cause you guys have been such this, you've been this technical first, like very, very focused on the back end and efficiency team. It makes sense to me that you pivoted this way, but anyways, tell me, tell me what a bound is for the sake of the listeners and I'll back up a bit. Cool. So before I give you that one sentence, I, I think uh, let me set the frame. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, Zach. So you know how uh, when you get paid by your day job, um, you, you, you get that pay stub. And the very first line item, it says your gross pay. The second line item might say, here's how much we withheld on taxes, you know, your state taxes, your federal taxes, your FICO, your social security, all that stuff. Um, 
And then, you know, maybe there's contributions to healthcare. Maybe there's contributions to your retirement plan. You know, maybe your employer is paying for it all or matching it. Who knows? Um, so do you, you know, when do you get that same experience, you know, when you earn money on the side as a consultant or an advisor? Absolutely not. No, I took all of that for granted until I had, I've told you this story uh, in 20, 2017, I think it was 2017, 2016 or 2017. I was working as a freelancer for one year and it was the worst job I've had in my life. But then all of a sudden I had this $10,000 tax bill at the end of the year that I was not, well, 10 grand in addition to like 10 grand that I had to pull out of thin air. That wasn't the whole tax bill, but I had to figure out where I was going to get 10 grand from. And it scared the crap out of me. It was a horrible, horrible emotional experience and I figured it out, but no, I took it absolutely for granted until I had that experience. And anyways, you're going to keep going. But that's what led me to being so enamored with you all when I met you and why I wanted you to come to Fountain City Fintech. Awesome. Um, I mean, it's true. Like when you, in you and, and again, 68 million other independent workers are earning money on their own, both as their own employee and their own employer. Uh, IRS you know, is going to basically put the same rules that they would to any other employer onto you, the individual. The difference is that that's now another hat you got to wear. So taking an even bigger step back before we really talk about a bound, um, I, well, actually we can talk about a bound, but let's come back to kind of the why, why we're doing this. Um, So a bound is the fastest, easiest, most compliant way for apps that are paying or serving independent workers to embed tax and benefits features right into their app. Um, you know, I, I think that we really believe that the future um, of, of independent work, um, we think it's on the rise. Um, I think there's a lot of smart people out there that think that, you know, love it or hate it, hate it, it's here to stay. I think the pandemic um, has made people completely rethink the sense of place and maybe even to a certain extent time on how and where we work. Um, and that I think is inevitably going to lead to to more distributed teams it's probably going to lead to the rise of specialists where possible for our work i think that's going to lead to having more fractional or i wouldn't call it part-time employment but the idea that you know for a lot of us we want to we we want to make sure that we have enough money to survive and we're doing work that we think is fulfilling but then we have passion projects on the side um i hope that we get into the different aspects of the independent economy i could talk all day about that um there's some really amazing uh, companies, both our clients and outside, that are that are building amazing things um, for all those needs. So, give me the definition of a bound now, because I agree. W- I agree with all of that, but give me give me the feature set, and then we'll get into all the okay. rest of the fun fun nerdy fair stuff. N- fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm really trying to not be too pitchy about a bound, and I realize this is not the right place, right? So, no, um, I, w- I want you to I want you to pitch about. I mean, this is the thing, right? And part of this comes from me loving you as a human to death, loving Alex and putting <laughs> up with Chris, but it, you know, it, it, it does come from that place, but it also comes from the point of view of who else are people going to go to, mm-hmm. you know, at least from my perspective, unless I missed a press release or something, you are the API for this, right? Like the biggest competitor that you have, I think is rebuild the wheel yourself internally or apathy and just, mm-hmm. man, I'm not going to take on that thing like that's a big problem so i yeah you know i think you need to pitch it i think this is something the world (laughs) needs to know about and i think it's something that should be embedded inside of everything right like i i paid my we have a personal trainer that's been coming over to teach uh (laughs) 
boxing classes and like uh, Jesse and I have been getting into MMA. So this guy's coming over, he's doing boxing personals with us in the, in the garage gym and we're paying him via Apple pay. We're paying him via Venmo. And every time we do this, I have in my head, I'm like, Number one, is he reporting this? Number two, why is Abound not plugged into these things? And just an automatic thing that you switch on where it's going to withhold and send every quarter. So, I mean, I'll do part of the commercial for you. I'm so passionate about it, but like, give me the, <laughs> give me the feature set so that folks can understand it and, and also understand how seamless of an integration it is because of the aforementioned Alex and Trent that we will explain, or no, sorry, yeah. uh, Alex and Chris that we will explain mm-hmm. to the world here in a bit. Awesome. Uh, thank you. So, uh, Abound lets those apps, um, just like you, just like you actually pretty much articulated perfectly, Abound lets the apps that are paying or serving independent workers um, kind of create that, you know, and I don't want to use the phrase uh, employee like, um, but uh, it creates the a similar withholding experience that employees really take for granted. Uh, where you know how much of that money that you earned as an independent worker is take home, safe to spend. The way you do that is you can use APIs that, you know, just, just by a simple call, be able to know, okay, how much of this invoice is, um, should I set aside for taxes? Um, if I'm using a banking stack like Bond, um, how do I be able to have the right amount of money set aside into my tax savings account so I don't spend what I owe? How do I, um, you know, have another component that, uh, maybe uses machine learning predictions where I don't have to build and train my own models. I can just be able to run all my transactions through this and then get a confidence score on which, which uh, category they are and whether or not they're taxable and how much the expenses are tax deductible. Um, and then finally, I think the thing that we're really proud of um, is, you know, we, we really are the, the only one that has made it extremely easy for developers uh, to uh, be able to, um, have a quarterly estimated tax payments, both the IRS and the state, um, you know, it, it just be able to happen for you in the background. So what other startups out there are doing, and they're doing a great job doing it, but it's a really human intensive kind of op- ops process of, you know, physically moving money from account to account, getting it through, getting the right paperwork done at the IRS. Um, we've obviously made that really easy where, you know, I think Stripe's a perfect inspiration. It should be as easy as an API. Growing the GDP of the freelancers, my friend. Growing the GDP of the freelancers. I love it. Perfect. So, is that is that true in every state now? Because I know a year or two ago, it wasn't wasn't every state. Yeah. So uh, it is there for the 42 states that have a quarterly estimated taxes. Um, again, I'm not cool enough to live in Miami. I've got friends in Texas. They always remind me um, that they they are not paying uh, a state income tax. <laughs> Well, they can, yeah, there's, there's benefits to these things, but that's mm-hmm. amazing that you guys are at the 40, uh, 42, you said that require it mm-hmm. plus the, the federal nature. Mm-hmm. It, it gets me excited. You guys have done a lot in a small amount of time. So tell us a little bit more about Alex and Chris, Alex, <laughs> especially, I think these are, I mean, they're important players in the game mm-hmm. of life that we are discussing here, but also it's not just about it's not just about an if then statement, right? Everything mm-hmm. that we're talking about is not an incredibly straightforward algorithm. So mm-hmm. Alex being in his position plays with that a lot. And maybe you can explain who he is, but even more so leading into that, that unique 
unique unicorn that is Mr. Lebaski and mm-hmm. his kind of deep, deep experience as number one, a CFA, but number two, a machine learning expert. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. why I call him a unicorn is mm-hmm. if you've met the man, you know, he's a unicorn, but number two, I mean, he's got this set of skills that's incredibly unique. So talk to me more about the specific pieces of technology that are kind of differentiating and like how this just gets smarter and smarter and smarter with more data kind of a thing. Sure. So again, anyone who's founded a company or worked on an early stage startup knows that so much in the early days comes down to, um, you know, not just the capabilities and skills and expertise or experiences of the founders, but I think how the founders build off of each other or play off of each other. And um, I think that's something you're alluding to that you've witnessed firsthand. Like, I mean, let's be real. We founded Track in 2015. We've been grinding on this business for more than six years or at least more than five before you know, again, don't call it a pivot. I, I really think of it as a reinvention, but call it what you want. Um, we really did reinvent the company about a year ago when we realized that um, we had the right product but the wrong distribution. Um, and I couldn't imagine, um, you know, how it, I couldn't imagine building this company um, with anybody other than Alex and Chris. So the three of us have such. Uh, and I think you you hear about this about you know they're truly great companies where the founders are all so different, um, very complementary skills. Then find a you know speaking in, in many ways seeing the world enough in the same way, but then seeing the rest of the world enough in a different way. Um, Alex, uh, is, you know, is an incredible full stack software engineer with an incredible uh, sense and eye and intuition on product. Um, Chris uh, is. Uh, I think you call him a unicorn. Um, I think I call him a wizard. He, uh, yeah. he is, he is, a, he is very unconventional, whereas maybe Alex is the absolute, uh, smallest attention to the smallest, um, most minute detail or the boy scout following the policy by the book, building good policies. Um, I always feel like Chris, Chris just kind of comes in and, and he might ask, what are the rules? Not necessarily, not necessarily to, overly adhere to them or follow them, but really he's the kind of person you want on your team when he looks at the rules and figures out how can I optimize to comply with these rules, but then but then find the least effort to get what get what we want. Um, he looks at things just so differently. And so like you mentioned, um, uh, Chris uh, has a background in finance. He actually co-founded Favor Delivery, um, you know, kind of the Postmates of the South, which is now part of, is acquired by HEB in Texas. Um, that experience, I think that, that Chris had, you know, in the early days of building favor, um, really put him on the front lines of seeing what is it like for a payer or a gig platform of an independent worker? What are the needs? What are the business interests of the platform versus the worker? Um, he, uh, full stack software engineer. Um, yeah, he is a CFA charter holder, um, you know, really smart financial mind, kind of the guy behind our tax engine. And then also the person, um, you know, we're not just machine learning anymore. We're deep learning some really cool neural neural nets um, technology that, that he's been making. And and that's probably one of the faster growing aspects of, of RIP is a lot of the R&D work that he's leading. But together, the three of us, um, you know, for four, four or five years, it was mostly just us and a very small team. We're now at the point where you know, we're actually, uh, we're, we're doubling over the next two months in terms of our team. Um, we're, uh, we, we, I think, if anything, have been maybe a little slow to switch from bootstrapping mode to venture mode. Um, because I think that we were lucky that we were able to do so much with, you know, really so few people. Um, but I think like a lot of startups go through, you realize, well, wait a second, you know, I, I may get a gold star for being capital efficient, but 
what if we could deploy resources a little bit, um, you know, more aggressively to actually expand and serve, you know, a lot more efficiently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hi- hindsight's twenty twenty. But if you would have, if you would have raised this round that you just did, that I'm, well, we'll talk more about in a minute, a couple years ago, and poured gas on that fire, that's a very different fire than you're burning today. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that I think you and I kind of talk about often without really using this new codified buzzword for it is distribution market fit. Right. Mm -hmm. Everything that you three do, Alex and Chris and you, you're all very much focused on the product. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that did hold you back from that B2C Mm -hmm. attempt. Right. And what you said before of everybody's so different. But why would you pour gas on a fire that's going to go in a thousand different directions and you're not even sure where it would burn, right? Versus where you are now. I I think it's a beautiful thing that you were as patient as you were. There are certain opportunities where you raise a lot of money and you just run. And I think you're at that now, but how could you have known that a couple of years ago? So I'm not even really sure what the question is, but I'm curious, like how much, how much mental load or like, how has your mind frame shifted since that reinvention and how much easier has your day-to-day life gotten? Cause I know getting someone to sign up for an app and to connect their bank account and all these other things is very different than, Hey, call this API and here's, you know, a monthly bill kind of a thing. So mm-hmm. how much of you, just your, like your most, your emotional, like mental state has shifted since the reinvention? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, and I, and I, I appreciate that this is turning into, I don't know if it's founder therapy or if it's just like a look inside one founder's journey so that other, you know, other people listening can kind of, you know, again, kind of experience it. But for, for me, I, I think I've our team, everyone on our team, not just the founders, have never been busier. We've never had you know more conversations, more meetings, more uh, progress on work, more intensity, more inputs. Obviously, getting a lot of outputs um, than we did before. But I think the difference is we feel more energized now. Um, mm. You know, I think we've got. I, I don't think people would say that. I don't think people at Abound would feel like we're. Um, I don't want to use the word overworked. Um, I think we're pretty inspired by being able to support a range and a growing, you know, group of clients that I quite frankly have figured out distribution in a way that track never did. Um, so it's amazing, uh, when we get to be there and kind of play, you know, I, I kind of joke with some people like you can, you know, you get the McKenzie consultant, uh, for free. We'll help you, uh, think through and design these features. We'll transfer all the knowledge we learned in building a track as a, I think a great product. Um, we're going to help you time travel. We're going to help you think through the, the user experience layer of, that you might build on top of our infrastructure on top of our APIs. Uh, and then you can have the, and then just pay for the API usage. So, um, you know, Alex, Chris, and I, none of us like selling. None of us are salespeople. None of us are BD people, really. Um, so it wasn't natural for us to build a, a you know, like I call it the sales culture. Um, our, our attitude has always been, how do we help, you know, again, how do you go back to the mission? How do we help these companies uh, better serve and protect their independent workers? And I think if you come from that place, you know, it's hard not to stack your day full of client meetings and, and design thinking sessions. And you're, it's, it's so interesting to me how so many of these 
I guess I kind of lump us together, right? Like in, at least in this kind of direction I'm about to head, I kind of lump a bound and bond together, but it's a set of APIs for you guys. It's mm-hmm. an API where cool. You have an API. Wonderful. What does that actually mean though? Right. And like, what is the future hold if you integrate with this set of APIs or API and in a lot of cases, especially for those kind of bigger brands, like you alluded to Honeybook earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Very clear, very clear use case, very clearly providing an incredible amount of value to their customers. Same is true of Squire. But like, how, what, all of a sudden, this is a financial product? Like, and you have to go build a whole team in order to build this financial product, like from scratch? Like, I have to talk to a bank? Like, you mm-hmm. know, get out of here. I don't want to do that. And if I do that, I need to know that it's going to be the most profitable piece of my business because I'm taking on this compliance load. I'm taking on, mm-hmm. you know, all of these additional things. So, I think it's really interesting how you are kind of taking this consultative approach almost by accident because you're good humans. <laughs> I find like in my day job at Bond, it's now that I'm running interchange, I do it a little bit less. But in all of these conversations that I have with brands, you know, we've had conversations with Squire, with Honeybook. I mean, we're working with Squire. It, a lot of it comes down to helping them understand how it fits and truly embedding a financial product, right? This whole like banking as a service thing Mm -hmm. almost feels like it's falling to the wayside because there's no service associated with that term. It's like the, the Mm. embedded nature of it seems to be the value add, but it actually comes from the conversations, right? It comes from you helping someone understand why they should in have a bound as part of the suite, not from, Oh, which, you know, I'm going to put out an RFP for which tax withholding API I should do. Cause like, it's so cutting edge. Nobody's even thinking about it at this mm-hmm. point. So did that just, did that just kind of happen naturally by through a lot of conversations? And is that something you're trying to like build into the culture for the future that have this kind of consultative approach and help people understand what could be? Yeah. I mean, success to us looks like we understand what the developer with the app, the client wants to do to better uh, improve the financial situation for their independent workers or their, their independent clients. Um, you start with their goal. And then from there, you really, I think, and there have been some cases where we've been honest to them and said, look, you know, we think that it might be a difficult, it might be a difficult ask of your, of your end users to, to trust you to be their bank and to be their tax withholding um, app. In most cases, that's not the case. I feel like when we're talking about like, is everything, you know, it, it, can everybody be a bank? I think everybody is fintech. If you, you know, there's a fintech angle to anywhere where money is made or moved um, or stored for that matter. And I think that, I mean, if you look at the current state of like how people kind of view their bank, um, you know, depending on what bank they've got, I think this is like a renaissance as a banking customer because you actually are living in an era where uh, the bank isn't just going to store your money. The bank is being compelled through competition to do more for you, to you know, uh, manage or advise your different aspects of finances, um, not just charge you fees for holding on to your money and giving you very little interest. Yeah, the the paradigm has shifted dramatically, right? I mean, it's it's give me all of the value, and if you charge me anything we're done, right? I mean, even Ally, Ally, I think of as this kind of digital first bank, but I think it was a couple of days ago that they announced that they're no longer going to charge overdraft fees. And 
I didn't even know they charged overdraft fees. I just assumed that that was a, a yeah. thing of the past. And there was this big press release, big announcement. I'm like, Oh, congrats. You made it to 2019, right? It's like, Oh, uh, it's 2021 guys. This is, this is a little bit late, but it is cool to see how the whole industry, the whole, yeah. the whole FinTech eating the world thing seems to, seems to be playing out. Yeah. I mean, I think you raise a great point about, you know, the, the, the evolution of banking. And I want to see if you, if you have some different thoughts on this, but uh, from our view, it, it seems like, you know, okay, you got traditional banking for our, however many hundreds and hundreds of years. Then um, if we're going to give credit to, you know, the chimes of the world that you're talking about overdraft fees, like I think that was like the very, to me, the very first generation of the challenger or neobank came in and said, hey, big bank, we can offer our services. Actually, no, before Chimes and Neobanks, maybe you had ING Direct um, and Simple and things like that, but just cut out the physical overhead. So that's, you know, that's uh, that's so obvious. I even forgot about that first gen. Second gen being around, okay, fine, the Chimes, the Daves of the world, the ones that are going to help you um, avoid overdraft fees um, by figuring out how to risk things accordingly. The next generation, I think the one that we're at kind of today, we're seeing uh, so many amazing startup banks that are... Uh, that are again looking at risk and saying hey you know what if we could get you person who really needs access to their money let's get you access to money that we have high confidence is coming into your bank we're going to get it to you two days earlier um that's i think kind of where we we are today and what we're going into next and i think this is where abound uh, is doing a lot of incredible work with our clients is okay cool if you've made it cheaper and easier and more fair for my banking experience what can you do beyond that how can you give me a self-driving or, or almost like a concierge experience where I'm not paying for an advisor, I'm not paying for a money manager, but I now expect that my bank is just going to understand what rules I set for it and it's just going to go carry them out. Definitely. And, and it seems like the bullshit meter is mm. like re resetting or something, right? D David Eric from Alliance for Innovative Regulation one time said to me on a podcast, I think it was I've done like two or three with them now, so I can't remember which one it was, but on a previous conversation, he explained to me that the overdraft fee is basically a, a rebranded payday loan in so many ways, right? Because mm -hmm. you're, I've never, never thought about it that way. And then he explained it to me and it was obvious you're, you're running out of money. Go ahead, take that extra money out, but we're going to charge you a $30 fee. Maybe you only overdrafted $10, right? And this, this whole world of, it's this, but let's call it that. Mm -hmm. It seems like the whole world, because of things like Cash App, because of things like Chime, like you're saying, the getting paid two days early. I mean, you know, you know my two cents on Robinhood, and I even think they've done some great things for the mm -hmm. world in terms of getting rid of trading fees and things like mm -hmm. that. So it seems like the consumer's bullshit meter on banking is getting better. But I wonder if the financial health of the average person is like improving along with it. What do you think? That's a really good question. Um, I could tell you what I, I feel or what my gut is. I, I really don't like speaking without data. Um, we actually recently ran, um, Abound ran a, a 2021 uh, uh, state of taxes in the independent economy. And a couple of the questions that we asked did have to do with, you know, like their general degree of confidence or having, you know, $400 or more set aside in case of emergency. And I think at a high level, there are some patterns. Um, I think that we are seeing, at least in the pandemic, I think the growing divide isn't just socioeconomic. I think there's a new divide that is growing, and I think it directly correlates with banking and, and, and financial health, which is the digital divide. So you've got mm -hmm. people who, 
you know, have limited access. And it's amazing to think about those. There's still people that have limited access to maybe not limited access to the internet, but limited access to a capable device um, of a particular level that these apps require. So that's something interesting that we've been learning. Um, the other thing is that, um, and you, you know, you probably remember that, you know, when, back when we were track, we did extensive work and research and even ran ARP Foundation's uh, self-saver app for them, kind of a white label of track. And we've, we experienced firsthand that there were, there's a sizable population. There's millions and millions of Americans um, who don't feel comfortable, even if they have a capable device. Many uh, older Americans don't feel comfortable participating in digital banking. And so that to me is like one of the digital divides that kind of concerns me is that, um, you know, I think people that, you know, basically, you know, look like you and me in particular because of our age, um, you know, and where we are in our professions, we have so many opportunities uh, to get access to quote free services. Um, Again, golden age for us. So I think that there are some incredible uh, products coming out there. Um, You know, maybe they're still focused on people our age, but they're focused on people that look very different than us. I mean, if we can do a shout out uh, to, um, I mean, just a couple of neobanks that I'm, I truly admire, like Bank Boulevard, uh, Greenwood, Daylight, Purple, just to name a couple, um, are doing. Wait, I don't think I've heard of, I don't think I've heard of Purple. What's Purple? Oh, Purple. Purple is an incredible neobank that is, um, that is uh, essentially focused on people with different types of disabilities. Um, banking. I mean, you're probably familiar with the story of Daylight, how Daylight, in particular, just one example, uh, banking is not compatible um, with, with, you know, with people with trans identities um, yeah. and experiences. Um, same thing with disabilities. Like, imagine having, again, pick your range of, 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 of condition um, where banking is easy for us. It may not be as easy or as fair and accessible to other people. So that's an entire, you know, wow. seg- segment of, of vertical neobanks are focusing on, you know, accessibility. Yeah, that's I had I daylight I have had the pleasure of getting to know them a bit and I love mm-hmm. that team. Uh obviously we both have a a good friend in common when it comes mm-hmm. to Donald and and mm-hmm. Asia at Bank Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um fascinated by the Greenwood situation especially with like Killer Mike and so much <laughs> of like uh just that whole cultural revolution is fascinating to me, but I hadn't heard of Purple, so I, I learned something yeah. new every day. I like it. I'm going to have to dig in there. Check them out. I will. I will. Good, good shout out. Cause I needed to learn that. Do you see a future where, and I guess this is kind of a self-serving question, but I can't help. It's, it's, it's not my fault that you don't have any competitors. Um, you know, uh, do you see a future where a bound is integrated into basically every neobank, especially the ones that are specifically, you know, I feel like chime or Vero maybe is a good example where it's just kind of like, we're a digital first bank cool. You know, it's, it's, we're doing this thing for this subset of society, but really that subset of society is pretty much everyone versus this new kind of niche, super focused angle on neobanks the the ones that you just shouted out to, mm-hmm. do you see a future where abound is or should be integrated into all of those? And also the cash apps and kind of like the Venmos, mm-hmm. like I was talking about earlier, is that something that that should exist because I always have that question when I'm at, when I'm sending these people money in the P2P way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I mean, again, I don't want to keep harping on our mission, but our our mission. Go back to the mission. It, it is to uh, really be there at the point of earning 
1099 in income, wherever those people earn income. And so we have an opportunity um, to to create a new you know monetization, a new um, a new opportunity for increased retention or reduced risk, increased compliance for any of the apps that are paying independent workers. So again, those gig platforms, the payroll provider. Um, you know, who has employer clients that are paying contractors. That's kind of that first group, you know, the apps that pay independent workers, the Venmo example you used. We have an opportunity to, again, build, help those companies build and deliver a, a, a fully working, uh, you know, tax withholding experience really quickly, um, as opposed to building it and maintaining it themselves. But where we see the most traction today are really going back to those banks. Banks, neobanks, bookkeeping and invoicing apps are the ones where we tend to see, if we're looking at the dynamic, independent workers often pay for, you know, directly or indirectly, they pay for those services. And so we just see like, you know, one of one of our earliest customers, a neobank, um, you know, for freelancers, specifically for freelancers called Lance, is doing some amazing work around the concept of stacks and taxes and contributions to retirement and healthcare. Those are examples of stacks. And so we're really mm. proud to par- partner with them. Um, but yeah, I think Chime, Vero, the Aspiration, all the big neobanks, and even some of the, you know, we're actually working with um, a couple, you know, traditional top 10 incumbent banks um, that are thinking about freelancer and professional accounts that are more, you know, kind of self-driving. They're not just, you know, if, they, if, if these banks want to charge a fee, they'd better offer a lot of services. So long-winded way of saying, yes, banks are kind of like, they're not just the early adopters. I think that banks and neobanks are like the innovators on that adoption curve. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, number one, shout out to Una Lance for the the recent fundraise. That's very exciting. And you have been a proponent for a long time. I met her through you back in the MBKC days and you guys have been through the trenches together. So it's cool to see, see both of you raising some money and, and running fast. That second piece that you noted there is especially interesting to me, the bank versus neobank kind of dichotomy and separation, right? One of the things I was fascinated by when I was at MBKC was we were in the process, um, I think as I was kind of like walking out the door, we finally launched it, uh, of being able to sign up for a business bank account online, Right. Mm-hmm. And what that means differs, I think, for everybody. But what is it like 80% of businesses in the United States have less than 10 employees? I'm, I think mm-hmm. I got that mostly right. I think you're right. Yeah. This is close ish. I'm, I'm still working on getting my Jamie to actually, you know, check these things. Um, but close ish. And MBKC was one of. I don't know, 10, like a handful of sub-Durban community banks that were able to open a business account online. Even some of the big banks, you couldn't do digital first account opening as a LLC or a C-Corp or anything. I, that was just my mind, like steam shot out of my ears, followed by my brain, just confusion mm-hmm. ab- abounded, not to you know get mm-hmm. too punny with you, but do you, do you see in your conversations, at least I know you can't share all of it. Banks. Do you think that, that, that wave is shifting? Do you think that the incumbent banks are understanding more about these freelancing needs, understanding that small businesses actually are the backbone of the economy and maybe can't always go to a branch? Like, do you, do you think that they're at least culturally catching up if maybe not totally technologically yet? I think it's a work in progress and I think it depends on the bank. Um, yeah, but I w- yeah. What I would say is that I, in some of our conversations with banks, both big and small, and not so much the neobanks, um, they are realizing that the needs of a small business owner, depending on how big, like you said, you know, possibly less than 10 employees, 
if you look at the, the small business banking products that a lot of these traditional banks offer the small businesses, there's a lot of features that they're probably paying for but not using that probably make more sense for a bigger, more established business. And so what I am you know, really surprised by are some of these conversations when banks approach us and say, you know, you know, how can we create, um, you know, a self-driving professional account or even business owner account? Um, I tend to be surprised because I'm thinking, well, I serve the individual sole proprietor. And a lot of the conversations I see in the pipeline are around, we get that, but this person is essentially, you know, the, the owner of their business is a sole proprietor, but then they're paying these contractors or employees within their small business. Um, can we create, you know, a better small business banking experience? And I think that those often look, if you look at the feature set that those small business owners are telling these banks they want, looks a lot alike the app experiences that these neobanks are providing to those freelancers. That's interesting. That's interesting. It really is going to be, it's going to be a fascinating next five years to think about the fact that you have been working on a bound four or five years. Like when you said that I, it, I had to take a step back and think of, I mean, it's amazing one, I mean, I guess how fast time flies, but number two, mm-hmm. how, f- how fast time flies when you find product market fit. I think it seems like two years in the past six months or something like that for you all, especially. And we kind of hinted at COVID earlier, but I want to like even dig into it a little bit more. I think everybody was very afraid of what, of course, everybody was afraid of COVID, but I think especially founders sitting in your seat, right? Sitting Mm -hmm. in the seat of the person who is responsible for keeping a company funded were Mm -hmm. scared out of their minds at the beginning of last year. Mm -hmm. And for good reason, people were getting laid off more and more folks were having to turn to some of these gig economy oriented apps. Mm -hmm. So there was almost this inverse relationship, I would think for you all where business after the reinvention of the company kind of shot through the roof. So two questions. One is just what do you think the future holds as far as this COVID experience? Like, do you think that this, do you think it was like 10 years packed into a <laughs> single year when it comes to the freelance economy? Uh, and then I'll get to the second question after that. Cause that's a big enough damn question in the first place. <laughs> it, it is a big question. So here's what I'd say. I think that, um, I think that uh, the experience that we all just went through of being either for those of us lucky enough just to, you know, the inconvenience of not seeing our family, uh, the inconvenience of having to work from home. um, I think for that first group of us, and I think you and I are both in that, um, we, the, the whole move to remote, I think we all kind of know is been accelerated. I think that remote was going to happen in general. Um, I think that remote was going to become more and more common. Distributed teams are going to be more and more common. And again, I'm talking about for the employers of employees. So that kind of happened like cats out of the bag. Yep. Um, yep. And like, I, I don't know if we want to pick number of years, five years, 10 years compressed into maybe one or one year or 18 months, maybe. Um, but the, for the other half of the people, the people that, um, you know, where I, I definitely kind of tend to try to not be too annoyed about the quote inconveniences we've had in the pandemic. Talk about the people who've had huge economic losses. Um, you know, people, uh, many of them employees who maybe they're working, you know, on the front lines in services industry or in hospitality. Um, they obviously, uh, were deeply affected by this. Um, I think we kind of all know the writing on the wall that government assistance won't necessarily, um, be there 
you know, for long term for these people. Um, so the question is going to be, will all of them be able to resettle into their old jobs? Will some of these people either, you know, to survive or maybe to thrive, do they want to start to explore a passion project or just think about work differently? And so, yeah, a long-winded way of saying, I think the pandemic has compressed some pretty big macro labor trends that were going to happen anyway, and just sped it up into a year. And unfortunately, we've all been in this experiment together. Yeah, the the unfortunate parts, unfortunately, stick out more than the fortunate parts, I think, to to a lot of us. I think you and I, yeah, have been mm-hmm. have been very lucky. I mean, even abound, you guys have been remote first since I've known you. I mean, is that is there a competitive advantage, you think, or just a cultural advantage in the fact that you've been remote as long as you have been? And what's it what's it kind of been like? especially since the fundraise and doubling the size mm-hmm. of the team and all that, like, do you feel more prepared for that now that you've kind of been doing this for a while? Well, I, I think on one hand, yeah, we, we definitely, <laughs> when the pandemic hit, it didn't feel like a huge change to us from a working standpoint. We were remote. We had, you know, we were about half our team was based in San Francisco. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, we made the decision to close the office down. Uh, we still consider ourselves a San Francisco company. We have several people still in the Bay Area. Other people have moved. Um, but I think to be competitive, at least at the early stages of a startup, I think I think it makes sense to allow remote first. Um, I've been spending a lot of time asking founders that um, are are navigating, you know, kind of bringing people back to the office, either full time or most time. How is hybrid going to work? And I think you know you got to ask yourself, like, well, why would they even bother to go through that if remote quote is working for other startups? And I will fully admit that there you you can't replicate the experience of you know whiteboarding in the same room um, day in day out celebrating having pizza parties for you know for for code push days uh, for having brainstorms you know whether directly with clients bringing them to your office like so that that's a trade off so I think that maybe some people are over romanticizing this move to remote that it's going to be the solution to all our problems um, for like you said for a bound like. It, we didn't do remote because it was cool or because you know it was better. We had to do it because our founders were in different cities. Um, our team, you know, we really should be looking for team no matter where they are. They don't have to be in the valley. I mean, I know you're a proponent of the incredible people of Kansas City. So, like that experience going through Mountain City really helped us think about well, what if we could have uh, talent, you know, distributed talent as an advantage? Um, I don't think Abound's the only company that's thinking about that. I feel like um, you know. The market's going to, you know, really set the price for the best talent, no matter where they are, even outside the Bay. Yeah, but that all is true. But I think you were thinking about it earlier. And as Mm -hmm. a result, have put things into place to make that to to harvest now that you're at this point where the rest of the world's like, oh, shit, we need to figure this out. So one of the questions that I love to ask you, because you actually always have an answer to it. Is kind of, I guess it's kind of twofold. One is, uh, one is how do you set goals? What is the framework with which you set goals? And, uh, the second softball is what are the OKRs for this fundraise? <laughs> what, what does this fundraise mean for the future of Abound? And we've kind of been hinting at the fact that you're hiring, but mm-hmm. what are you hiring for? What are the goals for the next few years and future cast for me? Let's dream weave a bit. Awesome. Well, I think you, you kind of, um, you hinted at, as to how do we set goals? We, um, I've, I've already referenced Andy Grove once on this, um, objectives and key results. Um, we jokingly say that's our love language at a bound. So, uh, <laughs> we, you know, we, uh, 
objectives and key results are, in, in our opinion, a, a really simplifying way to align um, and, and distill and, and really clarify at the end of the day, what is the priority? Specifically, what is the outcome? I mean, both directional as an objective and then, of course, you know, measurable as a key result. Where do we want to be? Um, and OKRs, and then this is more of like a PSA for OKRs for founders and, and, and yeah. product people, you know, listening. But OKRs have, are just one proven way um, to, to get everybody aligned around fewer, but more important, um, around fewer, but more important outcomes. Uh, so I could talk all day about OKRs. That's a different podcast. Um, so yeah, but, but for real, shout out to John Doerr. I mean, there's a reason yeah. I forced all you guys to, to read Measure What yes, Matters. Yeah, but it, it was you. It was you that reintroduced a bound to OKR. So that's a huge thank you to you. Um, well, what, ma- I what will- matters to yeah, I'll give that credit to John Doerr. I still, I, I tried for like <laughs> once a week, I was emailing his team to try and get him to c- actually come to Fountain City. That never worked. Um, but yeah, shout out to John Doerr. Shout out to that book. What were you going to say? I was going to say that um, even though they, they didn't, you know, you know, actually attend Fountain City FinTech, anyone uh, with any team can go to whatmatters.com. And it's yep. all free. It's all open source. The videos are incredible. The guides are there. So if you're a founder listening and you're thinking, wow, my team is doing a lot. We're, we're performing at a high level in terms of inputs, but the outputs seem to be all over the place. OKRs are one way to cl- clarify and focus. Um, another, another um, it's kind of old school, but a book that I'm rereading um, is High Output Management by Andy Grove. Again, third reference to this podcast. Um, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it, it is almost kind of the, the original genesis really of OKRs, but um, yeah. You asked, what are our OKRs? So um, I think at a high level, I'll, I'll talk, we do company level OKRs, um, kind of department or organizational OKRs. And uh, we really believe in having the leaders of each organization or team in the company uh, look at the OKRs above them and then decide, okay, how, how is my org going to align and support that outcome that the company expects? And you do that all the way down to the individual contributor. So at the company level, um, we really have just three objectives right now, and I and I don't mind talking about it publicly. Um, the cool. first one is our objective is uh, uh, meet and exceed uh, the expectations of our tax API clients. So that's a that the, the API products we've been talking about. Uh, it's a mature product set um, today. It's still really the only product set that if you're if you know if you're a gig platform or a bookkeeping app or a neobank and you want to add these features. Um, you either going to design and build and figure it all out yourself and build, or you're going to think about buying. And today, we're the only place you can buy it. I fully expect that if we do a good job and these features become more of a commodity, we're going to have competition, and that's going to be a great thing for our clients. Um, and we you know, bring it on. Um, so the the next objective is uh, let's discover, define, um, and design the next big product opportunity, the next contribution opportunity. And so there's some exciting work that we're doing with benefits partners in retirement and healthcare, um, specific with some of our clients where we're designing, you know, we've got kind of all this, all the pieces in the room. It ties in directly to some of the work that, um, that I'm doing with the Aspen Institute's Benefits 21 um, initiative where we're, you know, I, I feel so grateful, so lucky to be in a room where you've got, you know, the chief um, HR officer of Microsoft or, Ven- or, or, or Verizon, a former SBA or small business administration administrator, incredible people, you know, the economist um, of the AFL-CIO. And I kind of asked myself, what am I doing in this room? Um, but that 
the, the, the thing I love in our interactions there is we get to be in high level conversations with people where, you know, we're this young, scrappy, well-resourced startup that wants to go and innovate and fill in the gaps that these big companies, these big employers, these, these uh, big orgs have. Yeah. They're, and for, for the record, not to cut you off, but you yeah. were not that well-resourced when you first got in that room, just to say yeah. that, just to clarify that. I mean, oh, yes, yeah. you, you have raised some money recently, but you hustled your way into these rooms. And I, I don't know. It's one of my favorite parts about you is that you, you, you find ways into these places do usually due to your empathy and just listening and asking more questions. So yes, you're well-resourced now, but you were not then. So don't, don't lean too yeah. heavily on that. It was you. You know, it was and the team. It was you and was the team. De- but definitely, the, definitely the team. I, I would. I think it's. It, I appreciate you saying that, and I think it's important to note because, again, for founders that are listening that are early stage, um, do not underestimate the power of tactical em- empathy. Um, do not do not underestimate the power of listening because typically, you know, it, it's really a matter of just asking better questions. I think I really truly believe that you could be in a room with almost anyone. And just if you were if you were to ask the right question, you know, help, hopefully at the right time, um, and genuinely, and, and make it very clear and transparent that you genuinely care about being a part of that solution or that answer, um, uh, I think it you know it moves mountains. So the third um, and final objective um, that we are working on um, at, at, at Abound um, is to really position Abound as a thought leader in the independent economy. There's some exciting um, work that we're going to be doing that I'll, I think we're going to announce on on you know none other than Independence Day, July fourth. Um, that is thinking about going beyond abound. So about abound, uh, yes, we are tied to this uh, social impact mission of improving finance or improving wealth and wellness for 68 million Americans in the self-employed economy. But there are you know as we have these conversations, we realize that you know why does ind- why does the independent economy have to feel like it's at war with itself. Why do gig platforms need to be the adversary of the gig workers? And I'm not at all being, trying to be an apologist for the platform or, or be an absolute, absolute, you know, uh, blind advocate for the worker. Like I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, that there there are some important conversations that are not happening between the people that earn 10 million income and the people that pay it. Um, and I think for a lot of us in that third group, the people that are the, the businesses that are serving either side of that marketplace, um, for a lot of us in that that service side, we see an opportunity um, that if we could, I don't want to say turn the tone down, but if if we can if we can be in a place where we're willing to have open and difficult conversations about the future of independent work, um, there's so many exciting opportunities to, like you said earlier, grow the GDP of the independent economy. I love it. It's amazing how much of it comes down to, I I love the fact that you focused in so much on being this infrastructure level that allows for creativity and almost expression on top of this infrastructure you've built. Because one of the things you're alluding to, I think is that policy about this is very confusing, right? And I'll say it so that you don't have to, but like a lot of the the rulings about things like Uber being declared 1099 versus W2, a lot of these, you know, Lyft, whatever, what, whatever gig economy platform you may pick from, so much of it comes down to politicians making decisions in order to, not in order to, but that will impact the 68 million people and growing, right? And 
one of the things that, I mean, I never talk politics on the show really <laughs> at all, but I think we can all agree that there's certain things about what, especially I think Andrew Yang is kind of trying to do and bringing a lot of this to the forefront and being able to at least like have the conversation, you know, whatever your opinion is about his, his politics and about anybody's politics. I think we can all agree that the person that brings you the damn DoorDash in the midst of a pandemic, I don't know if they deserve to be called a W2. I don't know if they deserve to be called a 1099, but fuck, they deserve to be talked about, right? They deserve to have the conversation. They deserve to have their day in court and they deserve to have representation from people that actually understand what Facebook is, right? And what (laughs) Twitter is, right? And not, you know, an 80 year old that's saying, well, my daughter told me to ask you this question, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm incredibly excited that you guys have kind of reinvented in this direction. I have, as you know, so much love for you, so much love for the team, and I'm just incredibly excited for the future. So the last question is what can our listener base do to help you? I think we already talked kind of about you hiring and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. any other announcements you want to make anything else that you kind of want to say about the future of abound? This is your, you know, not last chance, but it's a chance until I have you on next time. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, So I I think that uh, I'll make this easy. So any, anyone who's working on an app that is paying or serving an independent worker in any way, um, we don't have to work together, but I'd love to get to know what people are doing. Uh, you know, again, even if you're if you're raising money and you're not at the point where even it makes sense to use our technology, um, if you're working on a really important idea that should exist in the market and should help people, I, I highly encourage you to reach out to me. Would love to be able to track what people are working on and get you connected to other people, teams, investors that can help you. You know, build on that dream. Um, I think I you know I, I'm sure we'll do show notes, but I think you can go to um, you can go to abound dot link slash ffs you know for fintech sake um and i'll i'll uh i'll provide a link of like if anyone wants to learn more about you know working with us and partnering us on technologies we can help people move faster and help their independent workers great um if people want to think about joining the team we're you know we're making i think we have eight openings as of right now there are going to be more um you know i love getting to know incredible people who really care about uh, improving financial security for that other half of America's workers. And then um, honestly, like I, I hope this doesn't like lead to like a, a huge um, tidal wave of inbound, but um, I'd love to give back um, to early stage founders in general, even if you're not working on the independent economy, I'm probably not able to spend a lot of time with every single person, but um, I love answering when I can kind of quick questions here and there um, in terms of just getting gut checks and sounding boards on, you know, I'm thinking about this versus that. Here's the context. Um, I still, I, it's something I miss. Like the more, I think that the later, later stage that we go in a bound, the less time that I spend, you know, um, kind of being an advisor or a mentor to other startups. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a two way street, right? Everything that you teach, you're also learning while you're teaching, I think. And you've taught me a lot, but I think I've been enough of a pain in your ass through the years that maybe you teaching me some things has helped you learn some things. And it's always a, you know, it's mutually beneficial relationships are a beautiful thing. And I think we just call them friendships. And I think that's what we have. So this has been For fun, sure. man. I appreciate it. I will put all of that in the show notes. Uh, always a pleasure. And I cannot wait to do this in person. Awesome. Can't wait. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Trent at Abound. I've added pertinent links to the show notes. If you want to dig deeper into Trent and Abound, go to lsbx.com to learn more about Lincoln Savings Bank and get in touch with their fintech-focused team. 
don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, folks, stay healthy, keep your head high, and I'll see you in Vegas. <laughs>